Uh, here we are. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Ezekiel. We're back in the book of Ezekiel. Last week, we, um, where can I put this? We took a little bit of time off and did our receive, reject, redeem. We watched, the, what did we watch? The King of Queens and some other stuff. He'll explain it to you later. You look really confused why we watch King of Queens in church. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so we're back in the book of Ezekiel. So let's just, uh, we got a lot to read today. We got to cover some ground today. So let's just get to it. Let's uh, begin with prayer. And so, Lord, we're, we're grateful that, um, that we can gather together and read your word. We're grateful that every single part of your word is uh, holy and inspired and is useful um, for building up our lives and sanctifying us. And so I pray today, Lord, as we cover a big section of the book of Ezekiel, um, a couple of chapters that most churches won't ever really get to, that you would bless us uh, through these words, that you would show us uh, who you are and show us your heart and show us how much you love us. So we just ask that you would be here now, speak through me and speak to our hearts, Lord, um, as you illuminate your word. Amen. <clears throat> so you guys know every night I, I think I've mentioned this before, I go to bed and I can't sleep, you know, so my schedule is pretty crazy, you know, I stay up really late. And most nights I get in bed, uh, you know, like, I don't know, two in the morning. That's the early side. And I lay in bed and I can't fall asleep. So what I do is I listen to the BBC World News Podcast. Do you guys know about the BBC World News Podcast? It's pretty great. If you don't know about it, you should. It's like American news, except they actually talk about stuff that matters. And they talk about news from all over the world. And just every night, I think it helps give me a little bit of perspective, right? The world is a big place and there's a lot of things happening. And like they talk about, it's how I was able to ask him a bunch of questions about the elections in Kenya last year. And he told me all about this guy that stinks and all this stuff. And uh, anyway, but I wouldn't have known about that from watching American News, right? So it gives me sort of perspective listening to the World News podcast. Um, but when I listen to the news, even just all the stuff that's happening all over the world, um, it's easy for me to look at it all just from my perspective. And what happens is, Sorry, this is crooked. I don't think I can focus. Let's see. That's better. Um, what happens is when I look at it from my perspective um, is my big, giant, fallen, broken, sinful head says, the way that you see the world is the way that it really is. Your perspective is all that really matters. You're, everything revolves around you and your ego, right? That's what happens. Even when I listen to the news, I think about, well, glad I'm not there, you know, or how is that going to affect... You know, like, you know, I find some in Asia and they're like, boy, I hope they don't stop manufacturing iPhones, right? All I'm thinking about is how this bloody coup in some country is going to affect me, right? This is what we do. We think about it just from our perspective. And we think about it also just from a human perspective. We think about politics and just kind of on our level. Well, if that person would act this way, then this would happen. We think of the world like this. And I think on some level, this is what was happening with the exiles in the book of Ezekiel. So this whole group of people... Uh, lost some battles and different things, and they were taken into exile from their homeland in Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, they were taken to live just outside. Most of them were living outside the city of Babylon um, in a small farming village. And um, they were looking at it like, what happened to me? Well, Nebuchadnezzar came, he won some battles, and I got dragged away, and that's the whole story. And that's human nature, is to look at what's happening around you and to think politics, to think this is the whole thing. Our perspective is all of it. Well, 
what we're going to read here is we're going to read three chapters today. We're going to read 17, 18, and 19. So we've got a lot of reading to do, so get ready for this. Um, and in these three chapters, what happens is God says to his people, look, this is how you see it. You're just looking at this from the political, from a human perspective, but there's actually so much more happening here. And you don't get the whole picture until you understand what's really going on here and who's really in control. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to take, if you're following along in the book, these are all out of order because Kayla asked me last night, did you mean to put them out of order? And I said, no, just put 17, 18, and 19 because I completely misunderstood her question. It actually is supposed to be. We're going to start in chapter 18, then we're going to read 19, then we're going to jump back and read 17. So if you have your Ezekiel books or whatever, follow along. Um, We'll start in chapter 18 where God talks to his people about um, individual and generational responsibility. So the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. What do you mean by using the proverb concerning the land of Israel? The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. All right, that's a really weird, you got to, we got to bridge some, some gaps here and show you the context. Okay, if I said it to you like this, there's a proverb, this makes more sense. The dad eats hot sauce, but then the kid's mouth burns, right? That makes a little more sense. That's something you could kind of understand. What they're saying is, remember, this is a communal culture. To them, individuality, the way that we do it in America, was a, basically a completely foreign idea. If you asked them about sort of our individual ideas, they would just look at you with a blank stare. They had no idea what you were talking about. And so corporate uh, or communal responsibility was the norm. And so the proverb went like this. You are connected or you're linked to your parents, to your clan, to your people. And so if somebody in your clan does something wrong or whatever they do, right or wrong, it affects you, right? So the, the dad, what is it? The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are so, you know, have you ever eaten sour grapes? Anybody, has anybody ever done this? My grandparents had a, a vineyard, like some grapes, not a vineyard, my, anyway, had a, grapes on their property. And um, uh, we used to go, and I used to love to eat the really, really sour, like it was almost like sour candy grapes. But you, even liking it, you eat it and go, ooh, you know, that face you make when something's really sour. That's what they're saying. Imagine the dad eats the grapes, but then that happens to the kid. Um, because of this communal responsibility. Verse three, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. You will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the father is like the life of the son. Both of them belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. So what God says is that's not actually how it works. Um, In one sense, you're not allowed to use your parents or your ancestors or whatever as a way out. Right? You're not allowed to say, well, all this bad stuff is happening to me, and I got sent into exile, but it's all my dad's fault. If he had followed God better, I wouldn't be in this situation. Um, that's, God is saying that that's not what you're allowed to say. Now, when we read this, there's something else going on here that we kind of miss because we're not like in, in engulfed in this culture. You know, we're not, we, don't li- oops, we don't live in this culture. And what was going on was this. Um, there's a pattern. He's going to talk about a father and then a son and then a father. and a, He's going to go through this family line. But what he was doing was he was going through the line of the kings that all these people would have known. So it'd be like if I said to you, think about American presidents. So if I just, without telling you names, think if, figure out if you can figure out who these guys are. First, there was a pretty old guy, and he was a World War II vet. Then after him was a smooth-talking ladies' man. And then after him was the son of the first guy. He was kind of a doofus, but everybody seemed to like him and wanted to have a beer with him. After him was a nice family man, then there was an orange man, and then there was a guy who's so old, I think he was there when we started the country, 
Right? You pretty much, if I say that without talking about who these guys are, you can figure out, okay, this is Bush and Clinton and the other Bush and Obama. You know, you can figure this out. With our um, limited knowledge of this time, right, just reading through this, we wouldn't catch this. But anybody in this culture reading this would have immediately started to think, okay, this, he's talking about three famous kings from the 7th century BC. The first one was a guy named Hezekiah. And he was a pretty good king. He reigned 29 years. He was a good dude. The second is his son, a guy named Manasseh. He reigned 55 years, and he was what the Bible calls in Hebrew a chump. And then a uh, bad dude. And then one of the worst kings, or the worst king. And then it skips a guy named Ammon, who only reigned for like a little short while, and jumps to the next big great king, uh, Josiah, who was Manasseh's grandson, who reigned for 31 years, and he was a good king. So in talking about these different generations that they're about to talk about, um, these are the guys that they're talking about. So they're, they're saying individually, but also generationally. So let's read about the first one. Verse 5. Suppose a man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual impurity. He doesn't oppress anyone, but returns his collateral to the debtor. Sorry, oppress anyone, but returns his collateral to the debtor. He does not commit robbery, but he gives bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He doesn't lend at interest or for profit, but keeps his hand from injustice and carries out true justice between men. He follows my statutes and keeps my ordinances, acting faithfully. Such a person is righteous. He will certainly live. This is the declaration of the Lord. So first, this person that's being described is supposed to be Hezekiah. Right, so he was a good guy. He wasn't a perfect king, but he followed the Lord. Uh, he trusted, uh, like there's a famous story when the, the Assyrians were attacking Jerusalem, and uh, he went and he prayed, and then the angel of the Lord came and killed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. Right, there's this famous, you know, because of his, he was a prayerful man, even though he wasn't perfect and he made mistakes. Now, when it calls him here, um, uh, such a person is righteous and he will certainly live, those two things. Righteousness in this context does not mean perfection, right? It just means somebody who's trying to follow the Lord. Think in terms of the covenant of Moses. This is somebody who does the right sacrifices, does the right purity laws, that sort of stuff. He's trying to follow the Lord. And his life is described. We're not going to get into that whole thing I just read. This, we could have taken this in smaller chunks and done a whole sermon on just what is this description of him. But like he does what's just and right. He doesn't eat at the mountains. They had all the idol feasts happened at the top of these hills. So he's skipping those feasts for the idols. No adultery with the neighbor's wife. He's following the purity laws. He doesn't oppress the vulnerable, even though he's in a position where he totally could do that and get away with it. He takes care of the needy. So in fact, not only does he not oppress them, he takes care of them. He carries out justice and he follows the laws of God as best he can. And then it says, because of all that, he will live. Now, we're not talking about physical life and death in this world. This is talking in a spiritual sense. It's a picture of life and death, right? And so um, the life and death in this world points to a bigger reality of life and, you know, spiritual life and death. And so sometimes in reality, this isn't saying if you're righteous, you're going to have a long life. Sometimes in reality, the very righteous guy dies earlier than he should have. And sometimes the wicked guy lives to be 100 and whatever. Right? Just this week, I'm reminded of this because um, Friday, Tim Keller died. What a bummer, right? That guy had like a huge impact on our church, right? Probably wouldn't be here if Tim Keller didn't get into church planting, you know? And he was, you know, what was he, 70, early 70s? 72. That's not old enough, right, for a guy. Man, couldn't he just write five or ten more books and then 
kick the bucket, you know, but no. Anyway, we'll talk about this at the end, God's plan and that sort of stuff. So he's not talking physical life and death, but what happened was Tim Keller, a righteous guy who was pretty cool, he entered into life, right? So he gets to live. And there were a lot of great quotes, by the way, this week um, that I read from Tim Keller talking to people at the end of his life about, like, what did he say? Like, it's worse for Kathy. She has to stay here, right? I get to meet Jesus. That was one of the last things he said. It was time to meet Jesus, you know? He's entered into life. That's great. Uh, just stinks for the rest of us. But anyway, that's the kind of life and death we're talking about with these guys. Some will enter into life, some will enter into death. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep going. Let's read about the next guy. But suppose the man has a violent son. So the good king, Hezekiah, has a violent son who sheds blood and uh, does any of these things, though the father has done none of them. Indeed, when the son eats at the mountain shrines, defiles his neighbor's wife, when he oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, and does not return collateral. When he looks at the idols, commits detestable acts, he lends it interests for profit. Will he live? He will not live. Since he has committed all these detestable acts, he will certainly die. His death will be his own fault. So now the son is this guy Manasseh. And you can read about him in Second Kings. And he was awful. And it actually calls him, I think, the worst king somewhere in the Bible. I think it says he was the worst of all the kings. And from a worldly perspective, though, he was a great leader. He had a very prosperous reign. The land of Israel grew. Um, but it was all marked by a turning away from God and injustice against the poor and the needy. That's what his reign looked like. So if the, the, you know, it was one of those rich got richer kind of things, uh, and the land got bigger. And from a, from a human perspective, it looked like, okay, this is a pretty, you know, he's got it together. He's a pretty good guy. Um, but his life is described here, right? He sheds blood, he's worshiping idols, he's cheating with his neighbor's wife, oppressing the poor and needy. Uh, he uses his power to oppress people. And so again, like the first guy, Hezekiah enters into eternal life. This guy will enter into, um, into death. And it says his death will be his own fault. That's important. Nobody who goes into eternal life is going to get there and say, this is what I deserved. We're all going to get there and go, I can't believe I'm here. I don't deserve this. Right? The grace of God is so great. But the flip of that is nobody who enters into eternal punishment and death is going to sit there and go, I don't deserve this. Right? When you get there, you're going to know. And that, that's what it says here. You're going, to, you're going to deserve what's coming. Okay, so they skip the son, and they jump now to the grandson. Now verse 14. Suppose he has a son who sees the sins his father has committed, and though he sees them, he does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He doesn't oppress anyone, hold collateral, or commit robbery. He gives bread to the hungry. He covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hand from harming the poor, not taking interest on profit or loan. He practices... Can I just say real quick about that? Um, when you read this, don't just automatically think, oh, no, I have a car loan. And God said, I can't. Okay, there was specific rules for specific people at a specific time about who they could loan money and stuff to. And what he's saying here is not that every time you loan somebody money for interest or take a loan out, it's bad. It's just in this time, there were rules, and this guy was breaking those rules. Okay, so profit from a loan. He practices my ordinances and follows my statutes. Such a person will not die for his father's iniquity. He will certainly live. So now Josiah is the grandson, um, and he was a great king. And we learn about there were all sorts of, um, towards the end of 2 Kings there, there were a lot of spiritual, they, they um, found the law and had this whole spiritual revival that happened because of King Josiah and because of the people he had around him. And so he's just like his, what would that be, great-grandpa? 
Yeah, because his grandpa was a bad guy. So he's just like his great-grandpa, not like his dad or his grandpa. And again, he will enter into life. Okay, so keep going. Verse 18. But as for his father, he will die for his... He says it again. So the, this bad guy is sandwiched between these two good guys. He will die for his own iniquity because he practiced fraud, robbed his brother. And he keeps on with the list. And did among his people what, what was not good. But you may ask, why doesn't the son suffer punishment for the father's iniquity? Since the son has done what is just and right, carefully observing all my statutes, he will certainly live. Okay, next time I teach a how to study the Bible class, I'm going to bring people here to illustrate the point that the people in the Bible don't think the way that we think. The way that they view the world is not how we view the world. Do you see what they asked? God says, that guy's going to die for his stuff. This guy's going to live because of what he did. And this other guy, he's going to live because of what he did. And they're not connected, right? The guy in the middle is not going to live because his dad or, you know, his dad was good and his great grandkid was good. That's not how it's going to work. Right? They're each going to be responsible for themselves. And the people say to God, well, that's not fair. <laughs> right? Do you see how different they think than we do? We would never say that. We would go, yeah, that makes sense. Everybody is up for them, you know, out for themselves. Right? You're responsible only for yourself. Um, but remember, remember, this is a communal culture. That idea of individuality and uh, re- like individual responsibility alone would have been absolutely foreign to these people. And so they bring up this objection. Anyway, so keep going. Verse 20. The person who sins is the one who will die. A son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity, and the father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. But if the wicked person turns from all the sins he has committed, keeps my statutes, and does what is just and right... He will certainly live and he will not die. None of the transgressions he has committed will be held against him. He will live because of the righteousness that he has practiced. Okay, so again, he, he gets into this point. That guy's going to live because he did these things. And if he repents, he's going to enter into righteousness and in, into life because of that repentance. Now, so it sounds like God is telling this very communal culture, this clan-oriented people, you guys are wrong about the way you see the world and those Americans are right. Doesn't, isn't that what it feels like as we read this? We're kind of like, yeah, God, you tell them. Well, let's not move too fast. Here's the thing. Most scholars agree that that's not what's happening here. God is not saying this is only happening on an individual level. This is probably what's going on. Is These kings, these pictures of these kings are being used as representatives of their whole generation. Okay, And so not only is he talking individually, although he is, he's also talking generationally. That king was the king during a certain time of people, right? It's like, um, you know, if we, uh, like, uh, called, uh, who is like uh, the boomers president, I guess? Reagan? Is that too early or too, anyway, you know what I mean? Like, if we picked a president and was like, all those guys from the Reagan years, we're talking the whole generation, right? That's what, that's what he's doing here. And so um, he's saying, not only are you responsible as an individual, but you guys are responsible as a generation. And then um, in chapters, the next one we're going to do, 20, 21, and 22, that's next week, he's going to take them on a history walk to show them how every generation has been responsible and has been wicked and evil and has rebelled against the Lord. And so this parable here is kind of the setup to that. All right, verse 23, look at what he says here. This is important. He says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his wicked ways, uh, from his ways and lives? 
But when a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, committing the same detestable acts that the wicked do, will he live? None of the righteous acts he did will be remembered. He will die because of the treachery he has engaged and the sin that he has committed. Okay, so here's the point of all of this. He's talking to them about responsibility individually, responsibility as a generation. And he says, this is the point, guys. I'm not like trying to be mean. I'm trying to get you to repent. I'm trying to get you to turn back to me. And um, what God does is uh, he's trying to come down to their level and he's trying to explain this to them in a way that they understand. And so he literally God is not surprised when somebody repents. Right? He doesn't have emotion. He has emotions, but not like we do. But what the Bible does, God does in the Bible, I mean, he condescends to us. Is like the theological word. He comes down to our level and he uses language we would understand. And so he says, you know what makes me really happy is when you guys repent. And you know what really bums me out? is when you guys are a bunch of sinners and you refuse to repent. Individually, generationally, all of it. All right, verse 25. We got a lot of reading to do today. All right, everybody, stretch. Okay, here we go. Verse 25. But you say we're going to have to take a couple of stretch breaks. Uh, The Lord's way isn't fair. Now listen, house of Israel. Is it my way that's unfair? Instead, isn't it your way that's unfair? When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, he will die for this. He will die because of the injustice he has committed. Uh, but if a wicked person turns from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, uh, he will preserve and live. He will certainly live because he thought it over, turned from all the transgressions he had committed. He will not die. But the house of Israel says the Lord's way isn't fair. I love the like. You got to add the whiny part in there. So the Lord's way isn't fair. It, uh, it is my ways that are, um, sorry, is it my ways that are unfair, house of Israel? Instead, isn't it your ways that are unfair? Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge each one of you according to his ways. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So again, he tells them again, you guys are going to be responsible for what you do. And they go, well, that's not fair. And that's still just, this is like the third or fourth time, this, it just blows my mind. Like, it's just so the opposite of how we think in America. Uh, But again, it's a completely different culture. So he tells them again in the middle of verse 30 there, repent and turn from your rebellious acts so that uh, so they will not become a sinful stumbling block for you. Throw off all the transgressions you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So repent and live. All right, so here's the problem as we read through the book of Ezekiel. There's this weird tension. In some parts of the book of Ezekiel, God tells the people, sorry, it's too late to repent. The Babylonians are coming. And then in other parts of the book of Ezekiel, it seems like he's talking out of the other side of his mouth. Repent and turn to me and come back to me. And, you know, and you're like, but didn't you just tell me I'm not allowed to repent? So what's going on here? Well, I think what's happening is, um, one, there's a tension. There's two things going on. There's a tension of individual and corporate faith. Right? So as a, as a generation, God says, it's too late, this judgment is coming. Okay? You, you guys have crossed the threshold, and the Babylonians are going to come, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. But as an individual, I need you to repent and turn to me. That's the first thing that's going on here. Um, but there's also a tension of the audience. Some of these people are already in exile. Right? They've already had the punishment happen to them. And so God is telling those people, now that you've received this punishment, now that this has happened to you, you've... The other guys haven't had the exile happen to them yet, but you have. It's time to turn uh, and to repent. Okay, so that's chapter 18.
the individual corporate responsibility stuff. Now chapter 19 is uh, 14 verses. It's a funeral song. So he says, first, you guys are responsible generationally for this judgment that's about to come. Now, what's this judgment going to look like? Well, it's bad, and I'm going to sing you a, a funeral song. Um, yeah, so anyway, here we go. As for, so it, this, is again, is one of those things. We've got to fill in some of the gaps with what he's talking about because this can get real confusing when you're doing your yearly Bible reading plan and you get to Ezekiel and you're like, lions and cuds, I'm so confused. All right, verse 1. As for you, take up a lament, that's a funeral song, for the princes of Israel. So for, this is a funeral song for like the... Remember, Ezekiel never calls him the king. Zedekiah, the guy who's in Jerusalem and all these guys. He doesn't like him. He calls them princes. Um, so take up this funeral song for the princes of Israel and say, what was your mother, a lioness? She lay down among the lions. She reared her cubs among the young lions. So this is a song, and it's kind of a imagery. The first picture is there's this lioness. That's supposed to be the people of Judah, the people of God. And so she has these kids. These are going to be the kings. She brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion. After he learned to tear prey, he devoured people. When the nations heard about him... He was caught in their pit. Then they led him away with hooks into the land of Egypt. So again, this is one of those things that like we weren't there for the political situation. So we don't completely it, like the force of this doesn't hit us. Right. But there's a lot of things that I could talk about and you would know exactly what I was talking about. Imagine if I was talking about the presidents again. And then I was like, there was this one president and he was unfaithful to his wife. And we would all know, oh, yeah, he's talking about Bill Clinton. Right. Or, uh, you know, there was another president and, uh, you know, he got impeached or something. You, you don't have to say the guy's name to know who we're talking about. Right. This is what's going on here. So this first cub is a guy named Jehoaz. He was the son of King Josiah. So now from 18, the, the line just keeps going and we keep talking about these kings. His reign was very short, three months, and he was a really wicked and violent leader. And in 609 B.C., he was taken prisoner by the Egyptians uh, where he was put into chains, taken to Egypt, and he died very quickly. Okay, so this is the first guy. So he's taken to the land of Egypt, he dies. Verse 5, when she saw that she waited in vain, so the people saw she waited in vain, uh, that her hope was lost, she took another one of her cubs and made him a young lion, and prowled among the, he prowled among the lions. He became a young lion after he learned to tear prey. He devoured people. He devastated their strongholds and destroyed their cities. The land and everything in it shuddered in the sound, at the sound of his roaring. Verse 8, then the nations from the surrounding provinces set out against him. They spread their net over him, and he was caught in their pit. They put a wooden yoke on him with hooks and led him away to the king of Babylon. They brought him into the fortress so he could roar and no longer be heard on the mountains of Israel. So the second cub then is, uh, uh, okay, here's the thing. This is one of those places where Bible scholars write papers. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, they're not exactly sure what's going on here, so they write a paper so they can get a doctorate, and they go, it's definitely this guy, and then some other guy goes, well, actually, the Hebrew of something, it's actually this guy, and then the Bible scholars argue. Now, this is one of those places. Who is this cub? Who's the next one? Uh, Jehoiachin was a king exiled with Ezekiel in the second wave. Zedekiah, if you remember, so when Ezekiel got taken, there was a king in, in the land of Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem, named um, Jehoiachin. This gets confusing because there's Jehoiachin. Anyway, Jehoiachin. He gets taken with Ezekiel and all those guys. So some people think this is a reference to that. Other people think that it's the guy that replaced him, the puppet king, Zedekiah, who also gets taken. 
Um, it doesn't really matter because it doesn't change the meaning of what's going on here. Jerusalem has a king. Babylon takes that king away because the generation is corrupt and idolatrous. Right? I think it's the first guy, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, so anyway, now the image, though. This is one of the confusing things about the Bible, if I'm being honest. It's one of my I'm going to ask God when I'm dead questions. You guys have those? You know, like mosquitoes, seriously? And then poison oak? Come on, man. Right? Because I used to, I got hospitalized from poison oak when I was a kid. Like, I was that kid that get it really bad. But anyway, one of my questions is, <laughs> why does the Bible change, especially the book of Revelation, it just changes images like that, and then it confuses me because I'm not that smart. You know what I mean? It'll be talking about, like, uh, all of it, like, I was reading something in Revelation the other day, and it's like, all of a sudden, the image changes from whatever it was into. Now there's a city. Oh, and by the way, the city's wearing a dress. And I'm like, what? I'm so confused. Okay, so this is one of those places where you're just like, okay, we're talking about lions and cubs and lions and cubs, and then verse 10. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard. Wait, okay, now we're doing plants, and I don't understand plants because I grew up in San Francisco. Planted by the water. It was fruitful, full of branches because of abundant water. I guess water helps plants, I don't know. And uh, it had strong branches fit for scepters and rulers. Its height towered among the clouds so that it was conspicuous for its height as well as its many branches. So now there's this vine in the vineyard. Judah's the vine, is supposed to be the vine. The leaders are the branches, verse 12. But it was uprooted, so this vine, this, the nation of Judah, was uprooted in fury, thrown to the ground, and the east wind dried up its fruit. Its strong branches were torn off and dried up. Fire consumed them. Now if, uh, it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. Fire has gone out from its main branch and devoured uh, its fruit. So these are all images of judgment, right? The fire, the uprooting, all this. So that it no longer has a strong branch, a scepter for ruling. So this, this is probably a reference to the last king there, Zedekiah. Uh, is torn away. He's stupid. He's weak. He's wicked. He's a terrible king. And he gets taken, and he gets judged, and now there's nobody to rule. This is a lament and should be used as a lament. So um, let me just real quick tell you what happens there in chapter 19. God gives him this poem. It's a funeral song. And what he does, though, is he just describes the political situation over the last few years. There were these kings, and they tried this and that. And that's the whole thing. right? That's all God really says. So we're kind of left to wonder... Why is he just telling us the news? Why is God just giving us the BBC World News podcast, but in poetry form? Because right? that's what's happening. He just went through all the kings from the last hundred and whatever years. And he said, this is what happened to that guy, and this is what happened to that guy, and he'll be judged and whatever. But like, what's really going on? So this is where we're going to jump back to chapter 17. And we're going to read chapter 17 and explain. God will kind of explain what's going on. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. He said, son of man... Pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. So riddles are supposed to get you thinking. That's the point of a riddle. It's like, get your mind working. Parables are supposed to convey truth. It's like a story with a meaning alongside of it. That's what parable means. So you are to say, verse 3, this is what the Lord God says. More images that are super confusing. Are right, you ready for this? So we've done, <laughs> right? We've done all, all these ones, lions and vines and all this stuff. Now we're eagles. Okay, ready? A huge eagle with powerful wings, long feathers, and full plumage of many colors uh, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. Now, this is really confusing. Let me explain to you what's going on here. Um, the huge eagle is Nebuchadnezzar. The huge eagle comes to Lebanon. It's a really weird thing, but that's actually a reference to Jerusalem. 
because Lebanon was where all the, was like the forest of Lebanon. You've heard that in the Bible. It's where all the lumber was grown to build the city of Jerusalem. So nobody really knows why the city of Jerusalem here is just called Lebanon, but this is what it means. It doesn't mean the actual place Lebanon. It means the place Lebanon built, which is Jerusalem. And um, so Nebi, King Nebuchadnezzar, I call him Nebi. We're close like that. Uh, he comes to Jerusalem. Verse 4, he plucked off its topmost shoot, brought, the, uh, brought it to the land of merchants, and set it in the city of traders. So this eagle, Nebuchadnezzar, he comes to the, the tall trees of Lebanon. You know, like the idea is the trees of Lebanon are in Jerusalem. He breaks off the top of the tree. Uh, this is Jehoiachin, the king who had been exiled with Ezekiel and them. And he takes him to the land of merchants, which was another name for the city of Babylon. So again, we're just getting the news. We're getting stuff that Ezekiel and them, they already know this. Yeah, I know that Jehoiachin got taken captive because I was in the same Trail of Tears caravan. I was there. It was horrible. We had to walk thousands of miles across the desert and only a bunch of us made it. Then, verse 5, he took some of the land's seed, put it in a fertile field. Uh, he set it like a willow, a plant by abundant water. It sprouted and became a spreading vine, low in height with his branches, turned towards him, yet its roots stayed under it. So it became a vine, produced branches, and sent out its shoots. So now Nebuchadnezzar, he breaks off the top of this one tree and takes it, that's Jehoiachin. Then he plants another plant, and that plant is Zedekiah. This other king that everybody hated was the uncle of the guy that just got taken into captivity. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, well, you guys need some kind of a king, and I need somebody who'll do whatever I say. Uh, that guy, he's the new king. And if you do anything to mess with me, I'm going to kill you and everybody you know. And then he takes off. Okay, so this is the idea. This king is leaning towards Babylon, right? This plant is facing Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar put him in power. But he was an idiot. There was another huge eagle with, a power, with powerful wings and a thick plumage, and the vine bent its root towards him. It stretched out its branches to him from the plot where it was planted so that he might water it. It had been planted in a good field by abundant water in order to produce branches, bear fruit, and become a splendid vine. So now this other eagle comes by. This other eagle is Egypt. And the vine then that Nebuchadnezzar planted, Zedekiah, he starts leaning towards Egypt. That's what it says here. He's leaning towards Egypt. What's going on? Well, Ezekiel, again, he's just giving us the BBC World News podcast. He's describing the political situation. Nebuchadnezzar put this guy in power and told him, if you mess around, I'm going to kill you. And the other guy goes, well, I don't like that deal. How can I get out of this? Maybe the Egyptians can help me, right? We see a lot of this in the world right now, right, with the, the jockeying and everything. Russia is trying to get people to help them in their war in Ukraine. Um, see, I actually do listen to the podcast. Last night I learned about um, Vladimir Zelensky was in uh, Hiroshima for um, – the, the summit with all the, what's it called, the G something summit, with all, G6, is that right? Seven? That was close. With all the world leaders, they're jockeying for position. This is what's going on here. He says, this guy Zedekiah, he turned around and he asked Egypt, hey, if I rebel against Babylon, will you help me? Okay, so this is what verse nine, you are to say, this is what the Lord God says, will it flourish? So basically, is that going to be a good idea, is what he's saying. Will he not tear out its roots, strip uh, off its fruit, so that it shrivels, all the fresh leaves will wither. Great strength and many people will not be needed to pull it from its roots. Even though it is planted, will it flourish? Won't uh, it wither completely when the east wind strikes it? It will wither on the plot where it sprouted. The word of the Lord came to me. Now, say to that rebellious house, don't you know what these things mean? 
So now he just gives them the explanation of all this stuff. Tell them, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took its king and officials. He brought them back with him to Babylon. He took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. Then he took away the leading men of the land so that the kingdom would be humble and not exalt itself, but would keep his covenant in order to endure. However, this king revolted against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt so that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he flourish? Will the one who does such things escape? Can he break this covenant and still escape? So I love this. That I think what had probably happened here was Ezekiel was giving them this very obvious parable. And then he looked out and he realized there's like a bunch of people that have no idea what I'm talking about. All right, let me just tell you. Here's the king. He gives them the exact, this is what, you know, Jesus almost never explains the parables, except a couple of times to the disciples. Here, though, he's like, look, dummies, let me just explain this to you. This is the political situation. Did you guys think Babylon would just roll over when you revolted? Verse 16, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God, talking about Zedekiah. He will die in Babylon, in the land of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised, whose covenant he broke. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and vast company, will not help him in battle when ramps are built and siege walls are constructed to destroy many lives. He despised the oath by breaking the covenant. He did all these things, even though he gave his hand as a pledge. He will not escape. So Zedekiah, it says, will die in Babylon. And that's what happened to him. Egypt never helped out, right? He made this deal with Egypt. He said, you guys come to my aid, because Egypt and Babylon were already kind of at war and they hated each other. So he's like, look, if I revolt and I stop paying my tribute and Nebuchadnezzar gets mad, will you guys help me? And they said, sure. And then Nebuchadnezzar got mad and Egypt was like, nah, just playing. Right, just kidding. I, was, I wasn't. You thought I was serious? Oh, no. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes and he destroys the city of Jerusalem. Now, look, that's everything here from a human perspective, though. This is the political situation. But the point of this isn't just God saying, I know what's going to happen. I can see the future. I know this, there's God here saying, God here is saying, there's more than what you see on a human level. What I want you to do is see behind the curtain, right? You remember that from Wizard of Oz when they got to see behind the curtain and it was just that old dummy pretending to be a wizard? Well, God says it's like that, but instead when you peek behind the curtain, you're not going to see some dummy pretending to be a wizard. You're going to see the almighty creator and he's in control of everything. So look at this. As we read this, I want you to notice all the times God says, I'm going to do something, okay? And before we get to it, remember what happens to the people of Jerusalem for a second. The Babylonian army surrounds this city. This really happened with real flesh and blood, actual people, right? Men and women, children, everybody. They're in the city, and the army of Babylon comes because this idiot king made this horrible political decision. They surround the city. They starve people. We learn that, like, people have to eat their kids because there's no food, you know, when kids and old people die first. So people are, like, eating each other. They're dying from disease. And then Babylon breaks through eventually, but everybody's already almost dead. They kill everybody else, almost everybody else, take a few of them hostage. They burn the temple of the living God to the ground. Take all the, 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 the like, the basin and all the candlesticks, you know, the, all the, the stuff from the temple back to Babylon, laughing at God the whole time it happens. Okay, now with that in mind, that that's what's about to happen to these people, the seriousness of that, I want you to read the, as we read this, think about how many times God says, I'm going to do something. Okay, therefore, verse 19, this is what the Lord God says, as I live, I will bring down on his head my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. 
I will spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare. Not Nebuchadnezzar's snare, my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and execute judgment on him there for the treachery he has committed against me. All the fugitives among his troops will fall by the sword, and those who survive will be scattered to every direction of the wind. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. This is what the Lord God says. I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and plant it. I will pluck a tender sprig from its topmost shoots, and I will plant it on a high, towering mountain. I will plant it, again, I will plant it on Israel's high mountain so that it may bear branches, produce fruit, become a majestic cedar. Birds of every kind will nest under it, taking shelter in the shelter of its branches. Then all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I will bring down the tall tree, and I will make the low tree tall. I will cause the green tree to wither and make the withered tree thrive. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. That's a lot of I will do this. Hey, can you give me a water? <clears throat> From the back odor? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Yeah. <laughs> so God says basically here, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to bring down the king. Me, not Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to do it. And we just, right, again, we looked at a, a whole bunch of the surface political level. And what God says is, as that stuff happens, it's me underneath. I am bringing my will to come to pass. My will is going to come to pass. My judgment is coming. Nebuchadnezzar, he's just the tool that I'm going to use to make this happen. But then in verse 3, he says, I'm going to plant something, right? I'm not going to burn the whole vine down. I'm going to take a piece of it. I'm going to break it off, and I'm going to plant it, and it's going to grow up, and it's going to be mighty, and all these birds will, will find rest in its shade. What God is telling his people is this. Look, I know this is harsh, and I know what I'm doing. Do you remember the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7? David said to God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. And God said, thanks, but no thanks. You're a man of war. I don't want you to build me a temple. But what I'm going to do, because you're such a good dude, I'm going to build you a house. And through you, the Messiah is going to come. So he had some kids. He had some kids. Those are all the kids we just read about. From that line of kings, the Messiah is going to come. And so the question is, well, God, if you destroy all these kings and all this stuff happens... If you're destroying all these people, how is that promise going to come true? Right? That's the question. And so what God says is, okay, I'm going to do all this, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to break off a piece of that branch. I'm going to plant it over here. And then from that branch, the remnant, the people of God, are going to continue to live. And then through them and through the line of, the, of David, the Messiah is going to come. And then, um, actually, I have it here. We're not going to read it now, though. I won't read you the whole thing so, so that we have enough time. But the end of the book of Kings is this really weird story. So everybody gets taken captive. And then at the end of the book of Kings, we read about King Jehoiachin, the guy who had been taken into exile. And it says basically he was in prison, and he was in a lot of trouble, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't like him. And then almost for no reason, Nebuchadnezzar goes, actually, I changed my mind. And you can come live at my court, and you can eat my food. And that's the end of the book. And you're like, what a weird, terrible ending to this book. Right? We, all these great kings in this war and this other thing. And then the end of the book of Second Kings is, and then he gets invited to dinner. The point of that is, God says, I'm going to keep my promise. 
through all this judgment, through everything that I'm doing, I know what I'm doing, guys. And this is the guy. Through him, he survived. He had some kids. They had some kids. One of those kids had some more kids. And then Mary and Joseph, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus. And the Messiah comes. Not, not through the puppet king, Zedekiah, the guy who gets killed, but through that first king, the actual king. Now, this is how we're going to wrap this up. What I want you to see here in this passage, in this very long passage that we just read, there was a lot in there, right? Three long chapters. There's going to be a couple of these, by the way, coming up. Of these, We've got a lot of text to get through in the book of Ezekiel. Because I didn't want to do judgment for like two and a half years. You know what I mean? It wasn't going to be. All right, we're kind of flying through some of this stuff. But what I want you to see here is God, basically, the pattern here is he gives them. Look, you guys know the political situation. But I want you to see that underneath the political situation is my absolute sovereignty. And what that means is that God is always in control. Look at the New City Catechism that we read every week. Question two, who is, what is God? God is a creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. So he sustains everything. He's eternal, he's infinite, unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. And the end of this is what's the important part for our talk today. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. So what happens outside of the will of God? Nothing. Nothing. The sovereignty of God covers everything. Now, um, didn't I put it in here? Yeah, there's this guy. His name's Millard Erickson. Do you guys know Millard? No, I'm just kidding. He's a great dude. Uh, he's a theologian guy. He wrote this book called Christian Theology, and I'm just going to pilfer this from him, right? I'm going to give you his bullet points and just kind of talk about this. Talk about the sovereignty of God here for a minute. Okay, so he calls it God's government. First, God's government involves human history and the destiny of nations. So the first thing we know about God's sovereignty, Erickson says, is it happens on a wide scale. All of human history and the destiny of nations, right? So why did we win World War II? I just watched Band of Brothers, so I got a lot of World War II in my head right now, you know? For the 11th time I got through Band of Brothers, you know? It's pretty great. You should watch it. Okay, if you haven't seen it, here, no, we're not going to get into it. But why did we win World War II, right? Well, we were better supplied, better generals, better... Well, okay, yeah, that's why we won. But also, why did we win World War II? Because God controls the way that nations work and move. Here's the second thing. The Lord is also sovereign in the circumstances of individuals, right, in the lives of individual persons. So not only is God deciding who wins World War II, right, he's deciding who you're going to meet and marry someday, or, you know, who you already married, right? Or, uh, you know, like every little thing. Like the reason you're sitting in this room right now listening to me talk about this passage is because the sovereignty of God worked out situations in your life that brought you here. He's not just figuring out the nations and guiding the nations and causing things to happen to the nations. He's doing that with you as well, and he's doing that with me. The third thing, the Lord's sovereignty includes what are thought the, as the accidental stuff. It covers the accidents. Okay, I was talking to my friend about this who we didn't, he's a guy from my old church and I don't see him very much. And then we've honestly, we've bumped into each other like 10 times in the last year in San Francisco, like out. Boy, what a coincidence, huh? Well, we don't believe in coincidences, right? Coincidence, no, I'm just kidding. Um, right, this is God causing things to happen. So me and him, we we're like, maybe we should be friends. <laughs> and so we've been texting and talking about Star Trek and stuff, right? Uh, God caused those things to happen. This is why I don't eat Lucky Charms. I only eat Providential Charms. No, I'm just kidding. That's not a real thing. <laughs> but we don't believe in luck. Even though I say good luck all the time, I don't mean good luck. There's no such thing as luck. All right, 
Here we go. Four, the free actions of humans are part of God's governmental working. Okay, so there's this tension in Scripture that you are responsible for what you do. King Zedekiah was responsible for how stupid he was to rebel against Babylon and call Egypt and say, hey, can you guys help us out? Even though God had told him not to do that. He's responsible for that. But, but that doesn't mean that God's not working behind his free actions. Right? God is causing those things to happen. And then the fifth thing, and then he has a bunch of subpoints there. This includes sin, right? This includes God working through sin. He could prevent it. He doesn't always prevent it. He directs it. And finally, he can limit. So he, I'm not going to get into all that, but that's Erickson's kind of points there. This God works even through sin and through the sinful actions of people. In our text, we saw a few things. God tells these folks, right, you guys are responsible for what's happening, and I'm driving what's happening all at the same time. And in, in our context, we have to live in that same tension. People are responsible, but at the same time, God is working, and we have to trust that God is working. In your life, circumstances are not always going to go your way, right? They're not. As the people of God, though, this is how we live. Uh, I messed up all the order here, and this is really small. There we go. This is how we have to live, understanding this, that God says this in, through the Apostle Paul. We know that all things work together for the good of those who are loved, uh, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So what he says is in his sovereignty, God moves everything in human history towards what? The goodness of his, good things happening to his people, for the, his glory to shine through even bad sinful things. Let me give you some examples. You know the story of Joseph? He's a guy from the Bible. You should check it out. It's a pretty good book. And uh, in uh, the beginning there, there's this guy named Joseph. And his brothers go, you know what? I don't like you. And so I'm going to sell you as a slave and tell my dad that you got eaten by wild animals. And then this whole thing happens, and Joseph basically becomes the prime minister of Egypt and saves the whole world. And at the end of the book, I'm skipping some things in the middle there. At the end of the book, the brothers are there, and they're afraid that Joseph is going to be mad at them. And what he says is, whoa, whoa, whoa. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. The same action you meant one way, and you're responsible for that, but God meant it for good. There's more examples of this, right? Like I wrote some down. Paul in prison. You know the story of Paul goes to prison? But what happens? He's like, I'm so glad I'm in prison because all these guards came to faith, right? There's a whole bunch of these. The ultimate example of this, though, is the cross of Christ, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility coming together. And at the same moment, we can say the cross was the worst thing that ever happened, right? We killed, as a people, humanity, we killed the only person in human history who didn't deserve to be killed. The only sinless, perfect person, we killed him. We nailed him to a cross. At the same time, the cross is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Because without the cross, how were we redeemed? Paul, I mean, sorry, Peter even says this. He says um, in his speech on Pentecost, he says, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used the lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Do you see that? What Peter says? This was all part of God's determined plan and foreknowledge. Right? Jesus didn't trip and fall. I said that when we did Luke. He didn't trip and fall and land on the cross. This is a whole purpose he came. But at the same time, it was a wicked and it was an evil thing. Trust in God looks like this. I have no idea what you're doing. You, you, honest conversation with the Lord. I have no idea what you're doing. I can't see any purpose behind this. But I know 
that you have promised that you are working out human history for your glory. So I'm going to be okay with whatever's happening right now. Not okay with it, but you know, I'm going to trust that you know what you're doing. I'm going to look at my circumstances now, <clears throat> and I'm going to look back at the cross, and I'm going to go, okay, he knows what he's doing. Because whatever happened to me is not as bad as whatever happened to Jesus on the cross. And that worked out, didn't it? Right, for me anyway. Right? I mean, it, it, it was great. I'll look back. What I'm going to do is I'm going to anchor my trust in the work of Jesus. All right, wait. Um, oh, that's the end.